Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Greetings, my name is Joseph Shapiro and I'm the host of the Heart of Soul podcast. I was a seeker of truth since I was a teenager, but I didn't meet Stace Barron until my late 20s. While I learned dozens of philosophies, spiritualities, and psychological tools, it seems to me that Stace's paradigm, identity, was exactly what I was looking for. It may be that it's what you're looking for too, and because Stace and I have conversations that I think are just too fascinating not to share, I asked him to do this podcast with me to see what would unfold. Identity is not for everyone, and we hope uh, that by putting this out there, it plants seeds for future generations so that the heart and wisdom in it find fertile ground in which to grow. It's an enormously sophisticated worldview that provides radical insight into literally every aspect of the human experience, and I must admit, as the producer of this program, the task of organizing its presentation seemed quite overwhelming, and um, it was a bumpy ride at first with the first handful of recordings. I hope you'll hang with us as we find our way through and as you find what it means to you. We do recommend that you listen to the episodes in order and let us take you on a journey with an open mind and a curious heart. It's a journey for us too. In this first episode, we use the question of why we're doing this as a jumping off point to explore how different paradigms affect our relationship to reality, the long, long history of the negativization of self the evolution of consciousness, and much more. Thanks so much for listening. I'm a man of many words, and I, I have very few words for how to begin this podcast, and I've put quite a lot of time and thought and energy into where to start. And I know a lot of things that I want uh, Stace and I to cover, but I've been at a total loss of how to begin it all in a way that's compelling but not salesy, in a way that's sensical but not contrived, in a way that's engaging but not, I don't know, uh, <laughs> trying to convince people they should think this way. And I want to say, I promise I'll let you talk in a second. Um, we're, so we're doing this completely spontaneously right now. And I, so I just said to Stace before I started recording, let's just fumble our way through talking about why we're doing this. Because the true authentic reason for, um, I can certainly speak for myself for why uh, we're doing this. I, I, I don't know how to talk about that in any kind of presentation sort of way because it's so personal and so deep in me on, on a soul level, um, to try to present some kind of outline of like, here's why we're doing this and this is why you should think it's important. I, I just can't do it. <laughs> And it's frustrating for me that I can't do it because some part of me wants to make a really nice presentation of, of this and, and surely we will of some things. But um, I'm just like, I feel like uh, exasperated in a way of the it, my inability to put this in some nice little square frame. And I want to talk about that and somehow <laughs> arrive at, not necessarily that in content, but sure. by naming that, maybe we'll be able to introduce what the hell it is we're going to be doing here and why. Well, I love that um, you uh, meta-framed it uh, that way uh, because 
I toiled for many years with exactly the same issue when speaking to a particular audience here or there. It was made a little easier in the past because the audience usually had a topic. Um, it was a it was a seminar or a, a, a talk about this or about that. So there was a built in um, direction um, uh, to go, and they expected that. But uh, um, what what you're saying just rings true for me, really, in a in a more personal way, because um, it's. It's one thing to, you don't need an abundance of IQs or sensitivities to see the world is um, uh, um, imploding on itself. Our institutions, um, uh, um, our our, uh, prevailing um, worldviews, everything is inside out and upside down right now. Uh, Left is right, right is left, down is up, up is down. Um, and people who have been, uh, most of us uh, who have been conditioned by having a certain, um, what can I say, terra firma to our experience of the world, um, that, that's really been eroding quite, quite deeply in the last two or three years, and not just because of COVID. Um, so uh, for me, to sit where I sit uh, and be frustrated because there are really three main um, categories of worldviews on the planet. And uh, each of them are mutually exclusive of the other. And I offer that um, why we're doing this is to provide a, a particular viewpoint that um, explains why the three main categories, meta worldviews are incompatible. And that because they are, there's something good about each one of those three meta categories and something that needs to be evolved past its certain state that it is in now so that they are compatible. Mm. So that's for me, the best way I can articulate why we're doing this. Um, In my truth, uh, uh, the world is doing what it's doing because of the incompatibility and polarization of these three meta worldviews. Mm. And those three meta worldviews? Um, again, we'll, I'll, I'll oversimplify to make the point because there are some overlaps, but in the main, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, first one, of course, and the oldest, uh, the oldest, so the oldest one at the moment that still persists, um, is, uh, an Eastern worldview, uh, that began with, um, Hinduism, uh, and, and the Buddha about 2,500 years ago. Hinduism goes back about three, three and a half thousand years. Um, but, uh, the Eastern worldview that is based on the either illusoriness of the sense of I or ego or its, um, universalization into a witnessless, identitylessness, being um, where the personal contours and the actual content and um, and sanctity of the individual I is minimized, marginalized, and oftentimes declared outright illusory. Um, this is the um, the worldview that uh, um, esoteric Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta, which is esoteric <clears throat> Hinduism. Um, are the two leaders in this worldview, and they comprise a a lot of people on the planet, East and West. The next uh, worldview is the religious worldview. Um, uh, The first one is a non-devotional, 
inward look to find out that the uh, I is the uh, the over attachment to the personal I is uh, what uh, in this worldview what uh, is causes all the problems. Right, because uh, each one of these uh, three things is going to be an explanation for the cause of suffering. Right. Exactly. Uh, nicely. Thanks. Thanks for putting that in. That's right. Um, so the cause for human suffering in this worldview is the over-attachment and over-identification with the personal I. Do your meditative work um, in, in the parlance of this worldview. Uh, the um, enlightenment um, creates a tabula rasa of uh, the dualistic mind, and with it out goes the window of the I that's generated by cathection uh, and appropriation of outer dualistic experience technical there but um that's basically it and the, and the solution to it is transcend the ego right through enlightenment trans-dualistic which is um, safe to say has never been more popular an idea in the west than right now and probably mm-hmm. will be more popular tomorrow than it is today <laughs> it's uh, certainly found its way into the west um and uh, as it has though as we'll probably talk about in this uh, series uh it's gotten watered down and um become um in a lot of cases just mall mall shopping mall level uh, spirituality uh, when the west is trying to fit it into its worldview uh, which we'll come to that's the third one second one is religious this is a devotional worldview that looks through the lens that um the human theater is contexted by um a uh, transcendent kind of uh, God presence um, that is uh, more or less, depending on the particular religion, sub, religious subsect, uh, more or less involved with the affairs of humans. Um, the religious uh, viewpoint um, holds that there is a soul where in the uh, non, the, the first one, soul is a really tricky concept. You've got some teachers in the first, in the Eastern uh, worldview that will hint at it uh, in some ways, but it's pretty fuzzy uh, that way because in their picture, in the first, uh, uh, the first worldview, um, any religious projection of an afterlife is just an immortality project we're scared of death clinging to yeah exactly right so it's just going to be an airy fairy version of life on earth in some way um um, where god is there and uh uh, the the war the worldview of the religious is almost always based on sin and the notion the notion of sin and it has pre-set um uh um uh, ethical and moral um, systems and institutions that tell us what God will like us for and what God won't like us for. And uh, this is uh, to, to a religion virtually. Um, the God of love um, uh, uh, that they all, some say directly more than others, um, decides, has set it up such that if you do things that it doesn't like you for, for a single lifetime's mistakes and errancy you are sentenced to an eternity of hell how those two go together um well you'd have to ask a religionist uh so the uh, a good share of up to upwards of four to five billion people uh, on the planet aspire to some sort of religious institutionalized um track um uh, differing only in the degree of things like original sin, proscription of sex without, uh, outside of marriage, blah, 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 you know the drill. So that's the second worldview that people process experience through. Mm-hmm. 
And the third one that's uh, just uh, arose uh, in the last uh, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, of course, is uh, secular humanism. Um, and this worldview uh, says that we don't need a mystical background for humanity's um, human human um, uh, being to be validated. Um, that we are um, maybe we're talking monkeys uh, in the eighth in the in the strict atheistic version of empiricism. We're real talking monkeys. We're real talking. Not an monkeys. illusion. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yes, um, not an illusion, and not beset ahead of time with any kind of original stain on our souls. Right? Not beholden uh, to some invisible supreme being. That exactly. Um, and secular humanism um, is either agnostic or atheistic. Um, uh, the agnostics tend to um, kind of be an a insurance policy in their pocket in case they're wrong. Uh, uh, most agnostics uh, that I've met anyway, when, if you pick at it a little bit, you find, well, maybe I'm wrong and I just don't want to, you know, maybe God will get mad at me if I, if I um, uh, aver um, outright atheism. Uh, but a scientific worldview, empirical worldview, humanistic worldview, they all kind of roll together into this third meta worldview. And um, their, their um, solution to the, uh, oh, the end, oh, sorry, we missed it. The, on the second one, the, um, the, uh, the end of suffering is do good uh, or allow the grace of divine being of some kind to come into you and you'll be rewarded in heaven. Here, here and now in a religious meta worldview, the reward is not here. That's a really important. The reward is elsewhere, um, not of this world. Whereas in the first one, the reward is here, enlightenment. Um, is, which is available to you when you're not here, while you're right. here. <laughs> when the eye is, <laughs> is, um, is uh, seen through as, a, as an illusory uh, overlay of an otherwise non-dual kind of... Yeah, I never thought about splaying it this way. So in the first one, it's uh, all of the riches of human experience are available when you realize that you don't exist. Yes. And then in the second one, it's sort of like when you realize what that uh, you um, you exist only by the grace of God, which is another way of selling out on the uh, the, the essentialness of self. Right. And then in the third, the third, um, the solution is to build a bottom-up human-based morality where we make up that everything. We, we come up with in terms of value systems, we're the authors of, even they would say of the religious um, uh, moralities, they would criticize the, the, uh, the, uh, the holy books as um, inspirational, but they weren't written by stenographers. Um, they were inspired, which leaves all sorts of uh, metaphoric and allegorical interpretations of the words, not literal. So the, generally, the the answer to suffering in secular humanism, which has, of course, many different facets, mm-hmm. is to take responsibility for it and to neither disappear from it or sell it out to some greater being. Um, exactly. Um, uh, Maslow's self-actualization uh, comes to mind here. Uh, certain basic needs are um, are met um, in a, in a benign way that doesn't incur on the um, the rights of others, uh, uh, fair-minded equanimity. Um, but uh, this is the one life that you've got. Uh, just like most, but not all of the first meta view uh, Buddhism, especially especially esoteric Buddhism. Only one life. Only one life. That's it. 
um, there's no afterlife. But I have to, I have to interrupt though. And I have, I want to also say for the, uh, for meta, for the audience, it's so difficult for me to interrupt you sometimes. Oh, (laughs) uh, we, we are, we're, Stace and I are in agreement that that's my job because Stace teaches from a very high level. And my job in this, in these conversations is to bring the conversation down into as accessible ways as it can be to people. And just for like for the last five minutes, I've been so itchy to talk about thinking paradigmatically. And that's mm-hmm. what's so maddening about trying to know where to start because it's sort of like, it's like, where do you start on a circle? Because wherever we start, we're going to have to talk about other things in order to frame <laughs> what we just talked about. And then we'll have to go talk about something else to frame what we, to frame that. And it, there's, it's so nonlinear because this, this, this paradigm of yours, identity is so enormous. So we have to talk about paradigmatic thinking because all of what you just said presupposes that the listener can oh. think paradigmatically. Yes. And presupposing that uh, is that that paradigms matter. First of all, the understanding of what a paradigm is. Right. And, and just even the frame that the, the paradigm, the beliefs, the values, the virtues, the uh, patterns of approaching situations, all of this stuff is becomes the filter through which we experience experience and either that abides with how things are Mm -hmm. and things work or it doesn't and they don't work and causes suffering. So we have a a implicit presupposition that that's how things are. And in this age of, I just sort of tried to summarize it there. And in this Mm -hmm. age of what I call extreme subjectivism, Mm -hmm. uh, we don't generally as a culture like to think that. We don't like to look at that we're experiencing experience through a paradigmatic lens and yes. necessarily and inevitably distorting it, causing us to not actually be in reality, which causes us to suffer. So ah, beautifully, beautifully put. Thank you. So we can we can write. Let's jump off on that, Joseph, yeah. um, because uh, those three meta worldviews are three different paradigmatic lenses. And what causes the suffering relative to how we started talking here is that just as you say, the populations, the tribes and the sub-tribes in each of those three paradigms only look through their worldview lens. There's, that's the only one. They don't, they don't have the critical meta to, oh, how have I been conditioned to believe this? How have I been conditioned to believe that? So thinking paradigmatically, these are three main paradigms. Uh, 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 that are mutually exclusive. Um, there are a couple overlaps, like we'll get, maybe get into. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right, and you're right to state that up front here. Um, I'm mean, so second nature to me. I wouldn't. I know. Yeah, for I, me too. I wouldn't think to, yeah. to say that. And in see? addition, it's like okay, I can imagine a listener being like, "Well, I don't identify as a Hindu, as a Buddhist, as a Christian, or even a secular humanist. I've never even thought of these terms." Or yeah, I guess I'm kind of agnostic. But the mm-hmm. the, the problem is. And I, I say this to people all, all the time, like if you ask a thousand people what their values are about X, Y, and Z, they will tell you things that came from psychology, Hinduism, Buddhism, and but they don't make the actual connection. And That's they right. think like they came up with it themselves somehow, but there's very, very few new ideas that can't be traced back to these lineages. Yes. And, and so the, 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 the meta problem to these three paradigms that we're talking about is in addition to the distortions in them, the people don't even know that they're operating inside these paradigms. That's, that's how semi unconscious we've all been conditioned to be mm. in some way by all three. 
Yeah. Uh, we don't question the values or see how much has been artificially put into us that we eat, take in hearts and soul, and then uh, somehow don't question it and and um, think that we're looking through a clear lens and seeing reality when you're being subjective without knowing you're being subjective. Uh, very few people I've met in life up front know that they've been conditioned. And, and secondly, even rarer, know that they've been conditioned badly. Yes, right. <laughs> See, And so, add to that, that they can't just change their mind about something and get the conditioning out of their being, because that's not yeah, how you it can't, works. You can't, you can't will your way or choose your way out of your conditioning. It has to be processed away mm-hmm. uh, um, in certain uh, dynamical ways that aren't out there very well put. Uh, so um, secular what, humanism... Go well, ahead. Let me jump on that. Let's just use one example... Oh just thought okay. of an example and it would take an hour to probably talk about. Now let's use an example um, uh, just to bring this home to something. So I thought of like the societal, um, uh, what Ayn Rand used to call bromides of uh, uh, that, um, you know, like it's better to give than to receive. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that millions of people would agree with. We hear it all the time. We hear it 10 times as much, you know, beginning November 1st every year. And like, where paradigmatically did that come from? Why do the masses, why do we think it's better to give than to receive? How could we paradigmatically deconstruct that? Um, well, that, that's a pretty easy one, actually. Yeah, um, well, good. Because um, both the religious um, paradigm, religious religionism mm-hmm. uh, and Eastern esotericism marginalize the personal self. Mm-hmm. In religionism, it's... Um, its needs uh, 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 are, are um, in religionism um, by by virtue of original sin are selfish, mm-hmm. um, and so the the self's needs not just the the self. There's a self there that's of a soul, I guess, in most religionisms, um, but that soul is inherently flawed to the selfish dynamic. It's that's the default. Right. So it's better to give than receive comes out of the marginalization of that of that um, uh, overview of the um, uh, uh, the flawed by nature yeah. uh, nature of the human beings. So to bring that home, I just want to put a fine point on it. When someone says or believes it's better to get better to give than to receive, they may not realize it, but they're hitching their paradigmatic wagon. Sounds like a phrase <laughs> you would say. <laughs> wagon to subscription to either original sin, original original ignorance in the East. There's there when they say it's better to give than to receive, they must irrevocably subscribe somewhere in them that the self is bad. In some manner, yes. Whether they consciously believe that or not, it's in there somewhere. Correct. And, and that's what uh, your paradigm identity is all about. D uh unearthing and unraveling all of that unconscious distortion so that you can see how the current version of you is a semi-conscious mosaic of old and incompatible different paradigms that were put into us before we even had much of a head on our shoulders. Amen. Amen. So in the, you'll find that Better to give than receive uh, is also there are forms of that in the um, Eastern esotericism as well. Um, but it's that would be another whole topic to go into what that 
how how that turns on in on itself like a snake uh, swallowing its yeah. own tail. Well, it's far more sophisticated, of course. You know, if it's, I, I often think like if the paradigmatic tenant can fit on a bumper sticker, yes, <laughs> then it's not not nuanced enough to live by because oh, you know, beautiful. Oh, that I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, and and in um, secular humanism. Uh, if there is no presupposition of uh, a damned, damned if you do or damned if you don't version of self, that the self is good of and to itself. This was this was what um, the Renaissance and uh, the Age of Reason brought in, that humans don't need a mystical backdrop uh, within which we operate to be good, that there is an inherent good, Fritz Perls and and uh, the giants of uh, of um, secular humanism trying to evolve a, a human based value system where the self is not the human the needs of the human self is not flawed intrinsically. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to turn into pretzels sometimes to um, to uh, 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 do what you want to do, but make sure you don't hurt anyone. And, um, and surely that was not possible without the Protestant Reformation before absolutely. that, which was a movement yes. away from original sin and uh, you know needing mm-hmm. authorities to tell you how to interpret the Bible and all that. Yet, if you um, talk to the majority of non-Catholic uh, uh, Protestantism, they all abide by original sin. They all abide by the um, the uh, what happened in Eden, uh, and we're all paying for it. Especially bad Eve, you know, uh, who caused poor Adam uh, to uh, do what yeah, he didn't want to do, but she wanted to do. You think Catholics do, not Protestants? Did I hear that right? No, the Protestants do it just as much as the Catholics. Um, but they've got a different prescription. Um, uh, in Protestantism, they're saying either good works or God's grace right. takes care of your original sin. All right. There's, you're more empowered to deal with it. It's a step right. towards self-interest. Yeah. Exactly. Self-agency. Catholic, Catholics, um, oh, that's way too relative for them. Um, if you, <laughs> it's way too relative, right? Not absolute enough. <laughs> right. If you don't believe in uh, transubstantiation, that the, um, uh, the, the the bread and the wine on the altar don't turn into um, uh, Jesus's blood and body, um, you're already destined for the hot stuff. Right, you have to get you. You're worthy of God by feeling how unworthy you are somehow. Correct. That's Catholicism, uh, uh, and that I love. Instead of I think, therefore I am. Catholicism is, uh, I am unworthy before God, therefore I'm worthy. So exactly right. Uh, this is this is again. There's a beautiful example of deconstructing your 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 paradigm and yeah. seeing how upon deeper reflection it becomes. If it isn't, if you don't use the word tragic, you have to use the word comic. Um, uh, yeah. And the other thing that's so difficult about it is like, well, surely, you know, the good works and the grace of God, um, there's another one besides good works. I guess good works. And no, I guess that was basically it. In Protestantism, yeah, basically, work. they're saying like your level, because it was a rejection of the aristocracy, your, your level right. in life you, through good, uh, through work. Or that, I mean, Protestants were the people who invented the work ethic. In yes, for sure. So it was an improvement on Catholicism by saying, oh, no, we actually have the power to change our destiny. Uh, And that was where the difference between Calvinism and the other one was. Um, So it was a movement toward secular humanism, but still with its own flaws. 
Yes. But God helps those who help themselves. Yes. Uh, right. That's Protestant. Whereas in Catholicism, you have to surrender utterly. Um, uh, no, no wiggle room that way. Right. Which was off, which is how the Catholic Church uh, made a whole lot of money and ruled Europe by saying, yeah, just give us more money and we'll absolve you somehow of your sins, but not through anything you do other than giving us money, which is a good thing to do. Yeah, that's that was the whole sell the indulgences thing back right. in the day, right? You can buy God's forgiveness uh, because you're giving it to Holy Mother Church. So let's let's finish let's finish okay. um, secular humanism here. Yes, please. Um, um, the end of human suffering um, is uh, to uh, technically is is what gave room for psychology to arise. In other words, um, uh, Maslow's uh, um, uh, hierarchy of needs are the effects, but how do we get at people who, are, who wouldn't fit um, if, if we find ourselves in, in life situations in a very strictly humanistic way um, that are t- we're tied in knots and we're not successful and we're under all sorts of pressures. Um, psychology arose to say, okay, there's a way um, maybe we can help you meet those Maslowian, Maslowian um, uh, benchmarks by delving into what you're unconscious of in yourself and trying to make it more conscious and make different choices and look at your value system and see if it's serving you or not. Um, psychology arose to be the um, worshiping co- um, component to secular humanism that corresponds to meditation. Because uh-huh, it gave you people a practice, yeah, something to do. Exactly. It was a, it was a dharma. Mm-hmm. Uh it's it's become um, watered down pretty well, and um, we could spend the whole time talking about what's happened to the worship dynamic dharma of psychology. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the cause of human suffering is to um, unwind uh, the, the the loops that you're caught in and self from your childhood, from what you've been conditioned to in this world. Um, look at your belief systems occasionally and see if they're serving you or not, and find a way to have, if not. Um, uh, uh, the kind of equanimity that the esoteric East talks about, but a, a self-regard uh, uh, and a peaceability about your life that isn't in chaos. Uh, so um, that's the end. Of, so that's the point of suffering. Um, get rid of your old cobwebs of beliefs um, and any projections. Yes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, when you when you um, if if your window has got a big spot on it, and you look at um, the tree outside. Um, you look at oh, what's that? What's that thing hanging in the tree leaves? Uh, <laughs> you don't realize you're looking through your own uh, warped um, or or spattered windshield of um, of, of perception. Which so, and, and, I, psych- and the advent of psychology, of, co- of course, took a greater interest in looking at the individual self than ever had happened before in history, because right. it was interested in the subjective perception of human beings, which prior to the Renaissance people didn't care about. No, no. Look what happened to art, Joseph. Uh, mm-hmm. In the Renaissance, instead of humans being depicted inside of a bigger theater and small figures in the painting, all of a sudden we had the girl with the pearl earring. We had, mm-hmm. we had all of a sudden it was it was anathema to uh, put that much emphasis on the human. You see, and, yeah, it offended but the Catholic Church. They they didn't like it com- completely, completely. So. Those are the three paradigms, as you so adroitly um, uh, metaframed for us. Um, and how to think paradigmatically means to have not just critical thinking about what you hold near and here, near and dear, but how you arrive at what you even call critical thinking. 
yeah. it's like metacritical thinking when you when you look at these three main paradigms of how to process human life. They're the really they dominate the earth. They 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 comprise about eighty five because cr- critical thinking is downstream of um, a priori conclusions or assumptions about yes. what what is good and what is bad. That's right. right. Critical thinking generally happens post that. And so that's the thing I I wanted to add to the paradigmatic thinking um, piece is because one of the challenging things is we learn a lot about Christianity and Protestantism and the Protestant Reformation, all this historical stuff, Aristotle, Plato. We learn about all of these things in school, but it's all in content. And what we're not taught is like, okay, so, you know, Aristotle talked about this and Socrates talked about this and Martin Luther talked about this. Where is that in you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. No teachers do that. They don't talk mm-hmm. about like, because that would be far too personal. Cause then what yes. would happen is the student would go home to their Jewish, Catholic, Islamic family or whatever and say, mom, dad, I learned today that this belief we have in our family came from this guy a thousand years ago who mm-hmm. had these flaws and this was his circumstance and whatever. And I'm rethinking that. Well, what would happen the next day is that parent would march down to the school and be like, what the hell are you teaching my kid? This is not okay. That actually happened to me. Did you know that? (laughs) No, tell the story. What happened? Uh, It's a a short one, um, but it brings a point where where I'd like to um, recap um, the the great direction you put us here today. Um, I was uh, living in uh, Oregon at the time and... um, uh, doing my thing at the time, um, being irreverent about uh, flaws in all three of these, Mm -hmm. what was good about them, what was silly about them, and what was downright destructive about each one of them, Mm -hmm. what they lock out of the the wide the depth and the and the width and the um, the height of human consciousness capacity. They're all small cuts through. so I was doing that uh, many years ago, and um, uh, one of the people who got attracted to what I was talking about said, uh, in, in the humanistic domain, um, uh, we talk about in identity um, the primacy of emo- emotivity, um, uh, of not just passing, rising emotions, what's called out there, but core emotivity. And um, I was talking about what what it is that children really don't get in childhood in a in an emoto spiritual context, and she said, "Why don't you come um, uh, uh, and um, once a week, I'll give you my afternoon class of seventh graders, and um, oh boy, um, and and we're gonna can do you think you can do some things to help the kids before they get to high school start sorting out where they feel insecure in themselves and the value of emotion rather than just thinking. And of course this was um, like clickbait for me <laughs> Right <laughs> before I pay money computers. for that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Before uh, computers were even out there that mm-hmm. much. Um, and so I did, and uh, it was wildly uh, uh, popular with the kids because they got to to feel what they feel. They were supported to feel what they feel, no matter what it was, without judgment. And then given a little bit of reflection, how that might be um, a stuck place for them or a freedom place for them it was really low key and just it, it was it was anarchic in um, concept, mm-hmm. but um, qu- quite well. Um, I made sure it stayed within certain boundaries of behaviors and things. Uh, um, at any rate. Um, Three, four weeks into it, um, exactly what you just said happened. And um, 
and, I, and I'm going to quote almost verbatim because I'll never forget this as long as I live. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 two parents marched uh, in uh, without their kid, uh, demanded with the principal to sit, the principal, myself, and the teacher who invited me into her class once a week uh, to justify how um, the kids were coming home saying that their feelings matter. Mm-hmm. And and we can't allow this because the, the children need to know what Jesus's feelings are about them, not their own. They're teaching they're teaching in this public school selfishness um, and and narcissism. And of course, uh, at that time I was young and naive, uh, and um, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Um, but uh, uh, since it was a public school, we knew we were going to take a risk with that. So did the teacher. Sure. But um, I even met with the principal ahead of time and gave him my shtick. And he said, well, it's worth a try. Let, let's, uh, we can, we got room. We have room for this. Well, that ended that day um, because uh, school funded that they said, if you didn't um, uh, get rid of me, uh, if they didn't get rid of me, they would sue the school system, the public school system for um, um, uh, planting dangerous um, notions into their Christian child's heads. Yeah. And of course that was a long time ago before the um, uh, made up right to not be offended would become as popular as it is today. Exactly. Uh, be careful if you uh, vacation in Florida because um, there's there's working on a law that you will it's a it'll be a crime to offend someone. This is are you serious? in the news right oh. as we speak. Oh DeSantis, uh, Governor DeSantis, and uh, is uh, is behind this um, that you can sue someone for offending you. Oh uh, no! Oh wow! I, I swear to God, uh, you can look it up. I mean um, that it even made it that I hope I, I I can't imagine it would pass. I mean, how would you regulate such a thing? But that it that uh, that's even in the conversation. I mean, yeah. and that leads to a whole other thing. I mean, wh- one of the reasons why uh, uh, education is so poor in our world is because it's it it can only ever go up to a point where it gets anywhere near challenging someone's value system. Mm-hmm. And right, um, yes, right. so mm-hmm. it automatically, that's why you can learn about Socrates and Aristotle and Descartes and all these people without ever having it made meaningful for you in a way that would be like, so this, I, these ideas that you have about it being better to give than to receive or men being this way or women being this way or marriage being this or divorce being that all of these ideas come from paradigms, but we can only in, in general society talk about these in like abstract academic mental ways rather than felt taking in reconsidering our points of view because the uh the the shadow in us or the ego or whatever we want to call it gets mm-hmm. offended well in my view and you tell me what, what how it looks to you that offense that of offendedness is just a defense mechanism that says i don't want to reconsider my value system about this because that would unleash a kraken of wounding inside us is that how it looks to you absolutely um it's, it, it couldn't otherwise be a defense mechanism because there's a there's a, even a greater meta um, metaphorical background to that and that is i am capable of absolute truth oh boy yes um each of the diehard populate subpopulations in each of these um, uh, paradigms, there are they all have absolutist based um, populations upwards of fifty to sixty percent. This is the only way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there is no God, there is no self in Eastern esotericism. Um, the, uh, uh, the self is flawed. Um, there's original sin, there's a heaven and a hell, and maybe a purgatory if um, we feel good about you today. Um, <laughs> Uh, 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 and, and to these, uh, uh, secular humanism, there is no God. Um, it's all rubbish, um, projection and, uh, ch- children's fairy tales and, uh, um, do your best before you die. If you're a, a pretty sanguine about it all, um, or hell, uh, go for it because who cares anyway? There's no morality except what we make up in ourselves. That alone, that that what I just said, I've met in so many um, atheists, um, even if they're gentle people, these are non-negotiable truths. So you would not be offended if someone challenged your truth if it was just a universal truth instead of an ab- absolute truth. Identity has no absolute truths. Um, it's offering a set of universal truths that are testable, mm-hmm. not to be obeyed, not to be believed in, because the the quality of the human uh, consciousness is soulful and integrous in and of itself. And nobody could come, and especially me, flawed as I am, could ever stand for what I'm saying is absolute truth. Um, it's, it's ironic, too, because it's very easy to look in the history of consciousness and see for every paradigm, there was a time before where it didn't exist. And it almost always evolves out of something, and it almost always evolves into something else. Yes, so it's right. very easy to see that the evolution of paradigmatic consciousness is a verb, and right. it's never fixed. I mean, even the Catholic Church has changed its tune about plenty of things. You know, they don't think that the Earth is the center of the universe anymore, and they <laughs> sure were absolutely true about that. You betcha. That's right. So evolution, there is evolution in some of the forms and expressions, for example, like the good example of the Catholic Church. But in the es- their essences, you'll always find this kind of splay. That there's wiggle room in certain evolutionary dimensions in any one paradigm, and they're just absolutely, you just don't, you can't touch this other belief. There's only one lifetime, no reincarnation, for example, in religion. Um, and so... Uh, it can evolve, but at the at its edges, not its center, usually. Well, you know what just hit me that I've never thought about before is, so I can get the words for it, that absolute truth is actually anti-self because it rejects the frame, the, the it rejects the individual authority and agency that an individual would have to test something out. You see what I mean? To to yes. test to set test a, a paradigmatic element, you have to be empowered to do so, and that's self centered, self centering. Right. You don't have permission for that right. in religious, uh, both East and West, in their own ways. Right. You can think of absolutism as beliefs on steroids. Right. Mm. Um, they're falsely pumped up, um, and that in this day and age that really hugely intelligently gifted people actually hold that a human being can know absolute truth. Um, that, 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 that people actually believe that's possible mm-hmm. is, is still, uh, uh, I used to have, when I was young and silly, um, I'd have outrage over that. And now it just saddens me so much that, um, that, 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 that is, people actually think that's possible. So you could say absolute truthism, belief on steroids, 
it is not a stretch to say that is um, the prime cause of conflict in our world from thermonuclear war possibility all the way down to um, uh, your neighbor and you getting into it because of uh, you're making too much noise. Um, So absolutism is the death of the integrity of the human spirit. And curiosity too. Um, and no, no cure. That's another way to say it. Turn it inside out, Joseph. Right. Um, it's a la- an utter lack of any curiosity, critical thinking about your own belief system. Right? And the the irony is that the the belief in absolute truth it, it seems to be so on the surface empowering. I know, but it actually stops. It's the end of learning because there's no curiosity and there's no testing, and then whatever data you get from life when you are, cause we're all testing our paradigms, whether we like it or not. And then when we get the data of like, actually, um, you know, women are not just empty vessels, uh, for blah, blah, blah. With, you know, the, the essence, one of the essences of the patriarchal point of view, when you get data and you try to mate with a number of women romantically, and they don't seem to like you treating them like empty vessels, there's all that data in your face, but if you're absolutely sure that your picture of women is that, then you can't learn. Uh, and I, you know, my, my heart goes out to anyone in a situation like that because of course it's disorienting as hell to have a long held belief, a long held, even absolute truth upended by the experience of reality. But as we had in a recent conversation, did we talk about that in our last podcast? Anyway, we recorded a couple of things that are probably going to happen after this, but that's a, a whole other story. That's the dead end when someone takes a paradigm or element of a paradigm and tests it because we're all testing it whether we like it or not and then run into the not truth of it. It hurts, but that's how we learn. And that's what absolute truth tries to avoid entirely. So well said. Um, There's one additional dimension, though, that makes the um, whole idea even more harrowing. I Uh think the right word, that's the right word for it. And that's um, throughout a principle here that identity uses quite a bit is the degree you need to have absolute truth about something is the degree of your actual doubt about that something. Mm -hmm. Someone who's confident in their belief system, it doesn't have to harden or crystallize into um, a, 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 an absolutism. If you're comfortable with the truth of it's better to um, receive than give, um, and you hold that as kind of an open hand instead of a closed fist, yeah. um, you're actually more advanced um, than the people who would say that you're going to hell on the opposite yeah. side because you're holding it loosely. So imagine <laughs> imagine um, saying to a... Um, a, uh, a, a radical Islamist that the degree you believe that Allah will reward you for killing the infidel um, is exactly the degree that you're not sure mm. that this is true because confident people don't need absolutisms, mm. right? And so anytime you see absolutism and it's everywhere from, from the CDC uh, down to uh, red state truths, blue state truths, the absolutism that causes all the polarization, it's everywhere. And every one of those people who hold it that way tragically are broadcasting in full bandwidth technicolor that they're insecure about their truths. The degree they are rabidly salivating about their truths, Tucker Carlson comes to mind, Sean Hannity, mm-hmm. um, 
um, on the red side. Um, these are people who, if you if you if you deconstruct and help them deconstruct their consciousness down, they're quivering, scared people deep down, and they need the surety of absolutism to get them through their day. So when so someone an emotional, is a, an yes. emotional dimension to this, right? So when someone is offended. Like, how dare you say that? What's actually happening, happening psychodynamically is it triggered a fear behind the wall of, oh no, this idea, uh, threatens my insecurity that my opposite idea might not be true. And then a, 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 a defensive part has to show up and make the person wrong for even uttering the words. So much so that in our society, we have these trigger warnings and people trying to pass laws against such things. Because sure. we're afraid, and we, and secondarily, we don't know what to do with that fear. Right. Okay. So let's 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 recap here and move another step forward here, um, and what and how you frame this out today. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I want to speak to how it may seem to the listener and those who get to view this uh, uh, when it's out on video here too. Uh, it may sound like we're we're coming off as smugly superior to all the good people that believe in these free by paradigmatic lenses. Um, certainly, it's refreshing to be able to speak with someone like you who's got the meta um, and isn't over attached to any one point of view and is still on a path of discovery as you are. Um, it's lovely, and we, Joseph and I, just want to say out loud, we we can get in, enjoy enjoy ourselves here, but. That's just the surfacial um, uh, aspect here. This is deadly serious. Um, the the compassion base view of this, while may that may seem to be belied in the way our tones here, there is this is a tragedy. Everything we're saying, this is a tragedy in an underestimation of the depth and uh, uh, and and breadth of human consciousness. So, what what I want to say to recap. Um, about the three main par- thing to think paradigmatically is identity sees positives in all three of those, sees distorted negatives, and evolves, not synthesizes. So this is not integral theory. Um, it doesn't synthesize the good and, and, and separate the wheat from the chaff, what it thinks is the good, right? And synthesize the three. This is, this is not a synthesis. Identity sees these three main um, uh, paradigms uh, and, and f- has found a way to make a metathesis, not a synthesis of the three, such that the elements of each of them are, are foldable into the paradigm of identity in a radically new framework. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't, we don't synthesize the three, the good in them, and throw out the bad. We see what survives as technically possibly real and possibly unreal categories, distortions, projections, um, we test them. We test them. Identity gives people dharmas to test the premises, test the assumptions uh, of each of these um, uh, uh, pictures of things so that they become real to themselves. And if they don't, if they don't agree with it, we don't, okay, that's fine. Stick with it. Stick with what you believe until you hit a dead end, like you, you said earlier. So in those two ways, um, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this podcast? Because the net result of everything we've said so far today, um, I just want to say this out loud, Joseph, is um, in service of wanting to help 
the suffering world that's that's um, um, polarizing by the day, and we can we can talk about what identity identities picture what what's causing this. And absolutism is high up on the list, but it's not at the top of the list. Absolutism is the way absolutism is what how it acts out and expresses in the end. But what's the what's the base causes um, of of what's going on here, and that is the inability to get out of your conditioning in any one of these three paradigms. I want to add to that. Um, for me, what I what hit me while you were speaking is it's difficult for me to speak intelligently about this stuff, especially when we're recording and all that, and also feel what it's really about at the same time. Right. When I really feel the suffering in the world and the pain that distorted paradigms get passed down generation after generation after generation. Oh, I, I don't have much to say about it. It's hard to find any words. It's just so heavy on my heart. And that's a challenge that I look forward to using these recorded conversations with you to try to uh, undo that split for, for myself so that I can feel all of uh, what we're talking about here and not just have it be one or the other. Yeah. The, um, the story of how identity um, uh, uh, formatted itself that I was just sort of witness to and went, oh, okay, that doesn't contradict this, so this can be okay, but that one does contradict and how that is a, it makes for an interesting story. But it was all in response to what the Buddha called the great compassion, mm-hmm. what Yeshua um, talked about as um, uh, that we're all walking sparks of the divine, um, and what he, uh, secular humanism in its Fritz Perls kind of um, uh, bandwidths talks about um, uh, uh, a community and uh, and, and uh, togetherness in ways that belie narcissism, megalomania, and absolutism. So all of what we're talking about, so the, to the people, why we're doing this, it's in service of trying to help in a way that's been off the radar screen um, of, of, of proponents in all three of these main categories and their overlaps. Um, identity is counterintuitive to every, all, almost all forms of conditioning, um, uh, has, has some uh, pretty uh, interesting re- uh, reflections against the limits about the limits of psychology, the limits of meditation and enlightenment, and the limits of the definitions of God inherent in religionism. Um, so there's, Virtually every sacred cow in any one of those subcategories of those three paradigms is, is addressed in identity, which is not because you and I are looking to be famous here. <laughs> We're looking to get some sort of compassion-based word out that there's another possibility of looking at everything. Um, and of course, you can't get away a paradigm. You can't get away from being a paradigm, a, pa- a no-path path is a path. A not paradigm, paradigm is a paradigm. We can't get over it. Identity has its own lenses. It's not above lenses. It's no better than the other paradigms. It's just that there's no absolutism. And and because there isn't, you get to test the lens to see if it fits for you. And if it doesn't, God bless you. Stick with what you feel is right until it doesn't feel right anymore. And sometimes these conversations have the power to make a light bulb go off here and here. 
for someone to go, wait a minute, I never looked at it that way. That was head so, and heart for the head, non-video. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, I forget this is going to be just a podcast also. Sorry. Oh, yeah, okay. You have to keep reminding me of that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad you said that because, um, yeah, it's it's not for everyone. And we're, we're doing this no. to put it out there for consideration. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I plan on reminding people very often to start at the beginning so they hear exactly this. Uh, so they get some, yeah. a taste of paradigmatic thinking, which I very exactly. much want to go deeper into but sure. um yeah just to for people to start to consider that they're living in a paradigm whether they realize it or not everyone and, everyone's a walking philosopher if you yes. have an opinion about anything that opinion is part of a value system and that value system is a part of a paradigm yeah and it's inescapable oh. and so uh we're either unconscious philosophers or conscious philosophers yes um, we're all philosophers so you, you might as well uh put some of your time and energy into looking at the philosophy that you have and making sure it's the one that you want. And like you said, if the, your personal philosophy is working for you, then absolutely keep going. That's what you absolutely should do. And you'll either find limits in it or you won't. Um, uh, So I'm, I'm a, 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 um, I almost said follower. That's not quite right. A subscriber to the identity. Yes. that, That requires Reason to keep renewing. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and sometimes when it's hard, it's hard to find those reasons. There have been many times, like, I have definitely do not subscribe to, if it were absolute truth, then I would not have the occasional doubts of, like, oh, man, what am I doing to myself? This is really hard. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah. um, you know, I just want to say personally to people, anyone who's listening, um, I first met you in, what, 2000 three or so and it's 2022 now uh Mm -hmm. so it's irrevocably changed the course of my life and continues to and i literally don't know who i would be or who i would have become without having the paradigmatic upgrade and the deconditioning that you uh made happen or facilitated to happen and so um you know, Stacey and I over the last year have been having a number of conversations that to me sounded like podcasts. And I just thought like, these are so good. We just, we have to share these with people and mm-hmm. pe- people who find them and they're drawn into this work. Cool. Uh, if they're not, then that's, that's fine. They're on your well, well wishes on your journey. You bet. You bet. Yeah. There's, um, this is an offering. Uh, and, uh, what I want to make clear another point in this non-absolutist way is that it is impossible to transcend conditioning. Mm. You can't transcend conditioning. In the East, there are ways to to, um, to, uh, 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 transcend your slavery to mental dualistic lenses of apperception. You can transcend those, but... um, a lot of people mistakenly in the East and the West believe that Eastern esotericism is the end of conditioning. Yeah. You get you are outside of paradigmatic limits anymore. You don't have belief systems. You're just living life moment to moment to moment. Tell that to the people uh, who um, have been abused sexually and physically by gurus and enlightened gurus. Um, uh, identity takes the bull by the horns here. We help people, uh, uh, like you just said, Joseph, um, to decondition, but recondition. You you can't get away from conditioning. Anything that sticks, 
even if you hold it with open hands and not absolute, uh, just in a universal way, that's being reconditioned to move from absolutism to universalism with your truths and your relationship to your truths. My God, that's a reconditioning. So you can't, you can't any, if you have a self, if you have six, five senses to the body, everything is conditioned. Everything is conditionable. This is the world of conditions. You can't get outside of it. And, and identity has its own set of reconditioning assumptions and principles for which you can find meaningful or not. Uh, and if you don't find it meaningful, um, but you have curiosity, you might find that after you look at what's underneath, why you found it distasteful or a dead end, you might find uh, that it was conditioning that kept you from seeing it later. It might be worth taking a few minutes. Um, I have it if, if you do, I think you do about uh, a, a belief when I, when I, we were touching upon it before, but it's right here again. When I, teach uh, what I learned from you about belief. I say, if I tell you that uh, the best pizza in Massachusetts is a place called New London Style, and it's right on Thoreau Street, and here's the phone number, um, you have to either believe or disbelieve that that pizza is good. But you don't form a value system around the belief or disbelief that the pizza is good. Mm -hmm. If you think it's good and you believe me, you are going to go and eat the pizza and decide for yourself. But fascinating, and we do this every day. Yeah, yeah. All sorts of things. But fascinatingly, when it comes to the domains of psychology and spirituality and relationships, we don't think that way. We don't mm-hmm. think in terms of, okay, like scientists, like here's a hypothesis, here's a premise. I'm going to test this premise out and see what happens. Mm-hmm. That's that's not what we're so we're the our it's crazy because our our conditioning around our values is actually not to test them out. It's to believe them absolutely. And then we accidentally dead end and find, Oh, I think I got to change something here. But for most people, the default mode is here's the belief system buy it. And then we end up testing it unconsciously rather than testing it consciously. Like you would do with pizza. I'll decide whether the pizza is any good. (laughs) The current, uh, uh, monogamy versus polyamory comes to mind that exact thing right Mm -hmm. uh so um well beautifully said uh joseph and and uh maybe it's a a a good uh add-on there that um from identities identities this is identity like eden Mm -hmm. not identity identity um and we can talk about where the name came from and everything um which is actually for actually from my beloved um uh, my wife uh, and soulmate. Uh, soulmates, there's another one, huh? Oh, a whole episode on about that, that sure. one, right? Um, but that most people would say a belief is a heartfelt thing and, and it's a passionate uh-huh. thing. Yes. Die for it or live for it. Yeah. And identity offers um, wait, wait, what if that were a conditioned response in itself? Mm-hmm. For identity, beliefs are always positional. They're they're authored by the mind. Think of a belief, a strong belief system, as um, a bunch of cinder blocks in a wall. The cinder blocks make up the wall, but the mortar that holds them together, that's our secondary emotional response to a belief. This feels right to me. Here's the position. Oh, that feels right to me. So they think that the source of the belief is the heart. A feeling response. Of, yes, I heard you once defined faith as an emotional response to a belief. 
Yes. Yeah. Faith is an, a, an emotional response to belief. Belief starts the train going down the track. We secondarily infuse it with um, emotional-based over-identifications or over-attachments. Uh, and that, but that does not mean a belief is a heart thing. It's not. It's, it's super thing. easy to demonstrate. You could do a guided meditation and describe a beach scene with, you know, the sound of the ocean lapping against the sand and the person would relax. Well, is that, you know, they're having a feeling based on what? Well, they believe that use their mind to imagine themselves in, in a completely non-true reality and it produced a feeling response. They can yeah. be very compelling. And life-changing for certain people, of, which we'll talk about in an in, in upcoming uh, podcast about um, uh, um, one-size-fits-all belief systems, yeah. right? And, and how different soul ages have different soul requirements for what is meaningful and real to them. Um, yeah, so I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I no. no right. I'm the, it's my job to interrupt. It's still, it's still difficult, but it's getting easier. <laughs> I, I want to, the reason I brought that up because I mean I think it's implicit already, but just to make it explicit is that identity is not a belief system, nor is this being offered for people to believe or not. Yes, uh, and that's a tricky thing to get across because our conditioning is to look at the buffet of possible uh, paradigms, <laughs> right? And believe it or not, believe this, and people. You know, so it's not about listening to what we're talking about through the lens of like, do I believe that or not? Although that can be useful. It's about like, is that compelling? Does that make some amount of sense such that I would want to try it out? Just right. like pizza. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Great metaphor. Great metaphor. Yeah. And uh, one, one, one last thing to say about paradigms here. Now that we've got some good context to some meat on the bone, so to speak, is that um, a lot of people have noticed, not just me, of course, um, philosophers and, and um uh, we could say day traders in uh, consciousness exploration. Wait, who are uh, day traders in consciousness exploration? Uh, what I'm going to say next. Okay. <laughs> uh, people who who see that the three paradigms, um, the problem with the world is overinvestment in all three. So what they're going to do is is cafeteria style paradigmaticis. Mm-hmm. That they they will pick and choose. Well, I'll take this from Buddhism and that from Hinduism and this from secular humanism and that and that from uh, religious uh, uh, philosophy, which is the New Age paradigm. You just exactly. That's that's New Age. Yeah. Um, it's a cafeteria style. Um, but I'd like to offer that um, th- this is categorically. If you unpack it, don't take my word for it. For it. But if you unpack that orientation, which sounds and feels so good, oh, look at how progressive I am. I'm not stuck into the conditioning of these three. I can pick and choose as I see fit. That's great. Yeah, it's better it's than a step being, towards self-authority. It, too. It's a step. Great. Congratulations. You're a teenager. Mm-hmm. This is good. You're saying no to mommy and daddy's uh, belief systems and you're picking and choosing. One day, though, um, the problem of the, the, the way the world is imploding on itself now is not is uh, is not because there's one paradigm you believe in rather than the others. Yeah. That's not what causes the problem. The problem causes that the one paradigm focus is encased in absolutism. Mm-hmm. If you have, if you go to, if you're a Catholic, Catholic, Catholic <laughs> I have to watch how I say that. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, if you're a Catholic and you have a pretty relaxed attitude, yeah, the priest says um, um, uh, I shouldn't uh, lust after uh, uh, women who are not my wife. Uh, and um, but uh, 
I know my pastors and his sermons are pretty, um, is pretty loose and, and he's forgiving and the shit tells us God will forgive and, and all that. Um, uh, uh, but it feels right to me to come uh, once a week. It's okay with me. I don't believe it's a sin if I don't go, but um, there's some good stuff in it. I like the, the ambiance. It gets me out of my normal weekly orientation and I get time to self-reflect and stuff. That there is an informed, conscious Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no identity would say, good job, good job. Whereas um, if, uh, if someone asked, uh, some religionist <laughs> asked me, um, uh, what would you say to an atheist uh, uh, given your orientation? And I would say, well, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Because as we're saying here, that's the next step of getting out of authoritarian absolutism. Mm-hmm. So one paradigm attachments are okay. Over attachments and over identifications turn into absolutism. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Because if we all had a curious mind about our belief systems, we could dialogue. Absolutism and kills dialogue. It, kill, it kills dialogue. Um, so it's the absolutism that's the problem, not one paradigmism. And a lot of people, day traders of consciousness exploration, would would say that um, it's the, the level of the problem is at the level of attaching to one paradigm, paradigm rather right. than the others. But, but the identity just offers, that's not the problem. The problem is absolutism. That's like, yeah, in business, when I work with people in business coaching, um, I've sometimes come across people who are rejecting the hierarchy of an org chart because they think hierarchy is a problem. No misuse of power is, is the problem. There's <laughs> right. no way, there's no escaping a hierarchy of responsibility in an organization and people have tried yeah. and continue to. Absolutely. There's hierarchies in the animal kingdom, yeah. hierarchies in the human kingdom. Yeah. These are without hierarchies in that one way, um, we would never have built civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, where, where it comes to hierarchies of value, uh, hierarchies of, of wealth distribution, this kind of thing, um, they can be positive or negative, but necessary they are for most uh, humanly um, infused uh, institutional um, expression. So can't can't get away from it, but there's exactly, you, you nailed that perfectly, the metaphor, because it's not the paradigm that's the problem. It's the absolutism. It's not the hierarchy the problem. It's power-hungry narcissism is the problem. The hierarchy just expresses it, and then people, day traders, um, throw the mud at the hierarchy uh, and seem feel like they're progressive. But no, it's the human beings running and inhabiting the, parad- the um, paradigms and the hierarchies that are the problem, not the structure. What, what's itself. interesting is the the um, the buffet style, like like the New Age. It's um it's an, an avoidance of committing to one paradigm that is looks to me like an approximation of being meta to a paradigm, but then right. it becomes a paradigm. Yes. Right. Um, so <laughs> it's on the way. The instinct is right. They're wanting to uh, not yeah. beholden to any one thing, yeah. um, but then there's predictable results and plenty of suffering that doesn't get addressed by such things. There's no accountability for one. There's no, um, you know, uh, whenever I see this all the time, you know, whenever, uh, they go down one road for like, okay, I'm a new age person. I'm going to pick up this thing called meditation and they'll take it a certain distance. But when it starts to get difficult, they go, oh, you know what? I'm going to do a gratitude practice instead. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. more comfortable than facing, you know, the, yeah. the, the feelings that come up. 
Um, so the non-rigidity in it serves in one ways and then it fails to serve in other ways where we actually need rigorous practice that challenges us. Uh, and so it tends to attract people who are looking yeah. for a good time to, yeah. to your polyamory <laughs> reference. Well, yeah, yes. yeah. And, and, and I'd like to say um, that's why New Age wasn't a fourth paradigm in my essay yeah. here. Um, it's derivative. Yeah. Uh, I have respect. On, uh, for people who passionately believe that they're on the right track with their lives with one of these three paradigms, um, stay there. You're right where you're supposed to be. And I just suggest a little curiosity, you know, depending on the rabidity of their attachment, right? right. Um, but new age doesn't count as a paradigm because it, it flows with the now moment of whimsy and, oh, this doesn't work. I'm going to do this one. This will feel better. And um, there's no rigor uh, because when you pick and choose paradigmatic elements, cherry pick, mm-hmm. you have to realize that meditation is based on a whole worldview opposite of religionism and um, uh, secular humanism. So when you take the practice out of the paradigm and try to graft it, in your secular, secular humanistic or yoga-minded uh, orientation, um, uh, that, that you use yoga and meditation to empower yourself right. when meditation was meant to disempower the entire structure of self. Right. You, get into, you get into backflows and eddies in your paradigmatic system that dead-end you faster than, than yeah. if you were a true believer. My metaphor for that is like, well, you can use the back of a screwdriver as a hammer. You can do yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> you might get hurt and it's not going to work nearly as well. It's like, oh, that's nice. not, these are not, that's not what these tools are not what they originally were designed for. You can use meditation for a million things, but what was it actually created for? Exactly. You, can use it for you, can't, you can't take the root out of any dharmic element yeah. and not have it follow the flower of that. Of that the, yeah, but the irony is what's true is the self-empowerment that says, well, I, I can take this thing and do whatever I want with it, is a movement out of um, more childlike forms of consciousness. As you said, it's more teenage. So yeah. in context, in some context, it is an improvement. Well, I'm going to use this. I'm the master of my own destiny. I can build my own paradigm here. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you build your own paradigm? <laughs> uh, it's certainly... <laughs> It's worth trying and failing at. Well, well let's go meta for a moment and, and offer that um, anyone's qualified to start their own paradigm basis of assumptions and stuff. But um, there's a meta paradigmatic element in the paradigm of identity that no one is qualified to consider their even universal truths that underlie and undergird their paradigmatic assumptions. Um, you're not qualified unless you discover the unconscious. Um, a material that causes you to have that opinion in the first place. Well, I have to all admit, opinions, I did not follow that. <laughs> should, should I, Say that you, again. I did not follow yeah. that. So that means listeners yeah. probably didn't either. Maybe in other words, anyone can make up their own paradigm. That's fine. Um, but identity offers as a higher bar in the, in the present evolving way that the humanity's consciousness is moving, that a sober paradigm requires not just critical thinking doubt about your truths and assumptions, um, but what, what it is in your unconscious that makes you think this is good and this is not good. Mm. Um, in other words, the deconditioning standard. 
deconditioning standard, an algorithm of, of modern day paradigm, paradigmism is that you must find the unconscious material at cause for your yay or nay to any position. And I have a really good example of, for that that I run into with clients all the time about freedom which fits uh, that new age yes. thing. Oh, go, go. And, I, and I so when people s- talk about, well, I, you know, I want to be free. I want to be able to do this and that. I don't want to have to believe any one particular thing. And I say, what, what is freedom to you? Sometimes mm-hmm. I give it to them as a written assignment. And mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, they, something, they say something like, to be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And then mm-hmm. I say, do you know any human being in the history of the world who's ever had that kind of freedom? Mm-hmm. Like not have to sleep, not have to eat, be able to break laws and not have to pay the price for it, all of that. Because the, and I think you'd agree with this, that notion, that very definition of freedom is a childish fixation. It's a, it's, it's comes from not having a complete dependent phase when you're supposed to have something like that experience. And when you don't have that experience, you grow up feeling the need to push boundaries and can't have anyone to tell you what to do because your parents didn't give you what you actually needed. That distorts the very notion of what we have as freedom, which is, of course, very American, this teenage kind of cowboy individualism. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'll believe whatever I want. Okay, you can do that, but you're going to run, you're going to dead end, is what we we think. Beautifully said, uh, and I can sum that up uh, from identity's um, point of view, that um, uh, freedom is never from anything and it's to everything mm-hmm. it's not from anything it's to everything and the notion that i'm trapped in any moment i'm not the only one who holds this um even some forms of scientology and uh, and uh what's his name uh, the guy with the big head uh uh ken wilbur um, no, no, <laughs> no, the physical big head. Actual uh, big head. I'm not yeah, sure. yeah. Um, uh, a cousin of Scientology's positive. Um, Werner Earhart? Uh, no, no. Um, the pop there guy, the big guy, is huge, barrel chested, black hair. Oh, God, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins, yeah. He does have a big uh, they, head. They dovetail Scientology and that um, uh, kind of dovetail. Um, that uh, uh, freedom in all those pictures beautifully metaphorize what you just said. Um, uh, misses the fact that every second of every moment of every minute of every hour of every day of every month of every year of your life, you are in freedom already. Mm. Freedom is not gained. It's a natural state of human consciousness. You are free every single moment to choose what you choose, believe what you believe, not believe what you don't want to believe. Freedom is not an attainment. It's the base dynamic that runs one of the main algorithms of human consciousness. And it's we always inside limits. Always. It's not the lack of limits. Let's, yeah. let's cast it that way. Mm-hmm. Identity offers, again, it, it's not, freedom is not um, a, 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 a devoid of limits. It's that within limits, there is freedom every moment, every moment. In fact, we would not even have a concept of freedom if we didn't have limits. They are inextricably right. dualistically roped together. Mm-hmm. If you take away, if you just you take away the limit claustrophobia, you take that out of the equation, and you realize that limits have nothing to do with freedom. Um, if I if if I'm in a concentration camp 
uh, and and I see I, I I grok what's going on here, and they're marching us to um, to do the showers to clean, and instead it we're going to be gassed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I I've sensed that um, uh, I have a choice to walk there or die trying to escape in that moment. It's a terrible example. The horror of the Holocaust. It's real, and um, and um, people chose to to be conditioned to walk to it. And those that did have a grocket, you they had the freedom in that moment. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die as trying to escape and trust that if life wants me to live, I'll find a way. Yeah, in other words, this just is, because someone has bad choices or doesn't like yes. their choices doesn't mean that they're not no. free to choose. No, everybody's right. inside limits, some more than others. Exactly, and and the only the only limits that truly exist are children that can't change their circumstance and can't walk away from the home at age seven and and, and strike out on their own. Children are truly limited, but adults are not. And that's uh, where we learn limits are bad because they were go. bad. And then we grew right. up with this sense of, I need to be free. How do we get, how do we start talking about freedom anyway? What was that example of? I can't remember um, how we got that. I forgot right. either. I, I triggered you to go that direction there for something. Yeah, I said. It was anyway, I don't know. I'm, I'm, we've been talking for a while. I'm starting to lose my mind a bit. So I, I think maybe oh, that, that, that's the whole point here. Oh, right. Losing the mind. (laughs) Uh, In one domain, uh, we want to we want to lose. We want to offer people, especially in Eastern esotericism, the job is to job one is lose the mind. Um, But uh, uh, we want to lose of the mind and retain what's what's wonderful about it. uh, Dualistically, is uh, the overattachment to belief systems that comprise value systems that comprise paradigms. Okay, we were talking about uh, freedom as an example of what unconsciously would drive someone to yes, a buffet-like paradigm like yeah. the New Age. Exactly. When actually, what they're testing out is what happens if I follow this conditioned notion of freedom. And right. uh, what I wanted to add was, um, you know, where I see that leaving people a lot is being in their late forties, having no savings and no marketable skills. And it's like, ah, that's tragic. And I think we're going to see a lot more people like that who just say, I'm just going to travel and no, I'm not homeless. I knew one guy who was in that paradigm. He didn't describe himself as homeless. He described himself as home free. Mm -hmm. And okay, that's the paradigm that you're trying out. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you need to do that for a life or two or 10. Sure. Uh, Absolutely. There's no, no judgment about it, but um, right. that's, we're all walking philosophers, as you say. Yeah. Well, somebody, I, I'm not sure who it was in secular humanism, decided that the human attention span starts faltering about 90, 90 minutes. minutes. Yes. Right? So I always Stop. hit breaks in seminars. Uh, every 90 minutes we have to take a break, and we're coming up on that here soon. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I'd like to reiterate, uh, uh, first of all, some gratitude here, Joseph, um, that uh, you came up with this idea to turn our conversations into a podcast and on video also, mm-hmm. uh, the second phase of it. Um, so you can see um, and, and feel the tones in our voices. And we may offend we may offend you in what we say, and some people will be offended in how we say it, um, not what we say, but how we say it, how we color it with our tones and um, our, um, but again, I want to reiterate that this, this whole reason we're doing this, as you started out, uh, why are we doing this is to compassionately offer an alternative to absolutism and 
both to absolutism and to cafeteria style cherry picking. Um, there's another alternative and uh, it's a new kid on the block and uh, it's not for everyone. Um, but for the percentage of the planet that might be able to um, take it in, um, which is a small percentage, it doesn't mean we hold this elitistly. We simply, I, over a long life, uh, turned 70 this year and been teaching this since I was um, in my early 30s, uh, 40 years uh, in the desert of trying to get this out there, mm-hmm. not because I think um, people should listen to me, but because they're suffering in ways that are equally caused by the very paradigms they seek solace from, oh, from which boy. they seek solace. They're, they're harmed and suffering and don't even know it. While they blame themselves as a result. While they blame themselves, which gurus do all the time in the East. Um, uh, Certain right-wing Catholicism does. Um, Secular humanism will wax philosophically and judgmentally about it uh, or psychologically. But the human condition, human, the human consciousness is a mess because we've not been given good, good parameters on how to framework what human consciousness actually is and as a result by default it's going to go this way this way this way this way this way without a coherence and it's the lack of coherence and non-contradiction non-contradiction ability that makes for a sober paradigm mm-hmm. if there's any if there's any element in a paradigm that contradicts itself whoops red flag take a look at it um, i've been for 40 years calling eternity looking for contradictions the only contradictions I've ever found in it is in my own f- uh, faults, in my own um, uh, ways of relating to the paradigm, not the paradigm itself. Yeah. Um, so uh, those are the distortions. Personally, um, I'm as flawed as the next guy or woman. But identity does give a set of tools, and I'd like to put this out there at our ending, some summarizing for today, mm-hmm. that there is a way to map and access the unconscious without hypnosis, without just associations, um, uh, um, without just uh, meditative visualizations, there's an actual dharmic way to get at why you feel the way you feel or don't feel the way you don't feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's rigorous, it's difficult because it's going against a headwind of these three main, think of these as big, those big um, uh, 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 wind, wind uh, generators. Uh, only that instead of uh, being moved by the wind, think of them as big fans. The headwinds created by these three paradigmatic uh, elements, which go at counter purposes for each other, yeah. create a maelstrom in the middle that um, that uh, 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 makes human life not a straight line. Uh, and even on the best, identity wouldn't offer that it's it's so much a straight line as a direct line to the essence of you. And who you are, what you are, and why you are. Each of those, the who comes with the what uh, identity finds um, wonderful about secular humanism. The what we are is what um, identity finds wonderful about Eastern esotericism. And why we are uh, is what uh, identity offers, is what's good about religionism. Um, and those are compatible if seen through a different algorithm of consciousness. They're all compatible, but not all elements of them are compatible. So that's what we're talking about and why we're talking about it today. And I, and I really again say thank you to you, Joseph, because you, um, 
you are helping translate um, uh, what what it is when someone or something brings a whole new paradigm way of looking at everything, everything. Uh, and it's, it seems so big a task. Do you, do you, do you create categories and try to do it a little bit at a time? Yeah. You start with the bigger picture. And today you started with the bigger picture. Why are we doing this in the first place? Mm. And thank you so much uh, for doing this. You're so welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for bearing with me, fumbling through my producer role in, in this and trying to find out, how to start with something, where to start on a sphere. It's <laughs> sort of like where to start on a sphere that's like a light year across. So like, oh, man. Oh, good, good metaphor. Not, I think we were successful. We were. And I'd like to offer, for just take off on what you just said, mm-hmm. your bumbling is, is authentic and, and endearing. Mm-hmm. Um, if, especially if when you get to see this on video and you see um, the passion and the vulnerable uh, awareness of his own limitations, Joseph so humbly and powerfully has. Uh, you'll sense in his tones, if you can't see him, uh, his bumbling <laughs> is very endearing and authentic and real. And of course, we have opinions on what authentic means these days. Uh, maybe we'll get to that in the soon podcast. I could say I went, uh, I shed blood, shed blood, sweat, and tears to be able to get to that what I would call minimal level of authenticity. I certainly it was not always like that. Mm-hmm. I was a, uh, uh, yeah, was one of the most arrogant people you'd ever known when I was in my twenties, and uh, I'm far less of that now because of you. I'll uh, I'll see you and uh, and, and and up you uh, uh, a whole lot of chips on the arrogance thing uh, mm-hmm. for a version of me that began this trick of trying to bring identity into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't uh, I had the right picture, but I didn't have the right um, relationship to the picture, mm-hmm. and I hurt some people, uh, dis, and, uh, dis, dis uh, dismayed other people, and um, yet um, still even in my limitations in the past, um, I offer that at least in the very least uh, people got educated uh, in a different, in a, in a more con- uh, uh, um, global way of the nature of uh, their lives in the background unconsciousnesses that drive them. So, yeah. And I was one of those people and here I am still <laughs> somehow, we're going to talk about that one day. Yeah. When we will talk about that one day. Sure, of course we will. We're yeah. going to talk about so much. I still don't even know where to start, but I do know what our next few episodes will be. And we already did two, which will probably follow this. So um, thanks for bearing with the uh, finding, not knowing our way through this. It's kind of <laughs> the only way I know how to do anything these days. And um, it's the, it's the, Joseph, it's the natural way. Think of a path uh, uh, 10 yards wide and had logs uh, as the as the boundary for the road, right? How much room we have in ten yards to go to to waver and go wavy instead of a straight line? Um, that that's that's the way. Utilize the chaos of consciousness to you don't resist it, but you use it to take you to destinations that are counterintuitive. And between yeah. the two of us, yeah. um, where I might miss something, um, you'll pick it up, and if you miss something, I'll pick it up. Uh, We'll, we'll, we'll get the bases covered no matter how chaotic it may seem. All right, then. Well, that's certainly, I'm, yeah, I'm uh, still not all the way surrendered to not knowing. Uh, there have been many layers and it's still disorienting, but uh, that's, uh, you're far more comfortable with not knowing your way through things than I am. So that's something I get to learn while we do these. 
So thank you, Stace. Thank you for everything and everything here to four, because we're going to do more of these. And, um, dear listener, if you want to, if this is compelling to you and you want to keep going, uh, we look forward to having you next time. Thanks for listening and, uh, be well. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey.